what is a life? How do we capture a life in words? How do we talk about people who are no longer with us? Yesterday, when I was drinking coffee with you all in the break, at home in Bergen, my father-in-law, my wife, and my children gathered for an urn internment for my mother-in-law. She was a wonderful, lively, loud, and caring woman who always put other people before herself. I was not there yesterday, but I was at the funeral service a few weeks ago. There we called it to life for a short moment with eulogies and songs and tears and laughter. I've lost both my mother and my father. I've done eulogies for both. And today I want to share with you my thoughts and feelings about losing the people you love and putting the loss into words. I'll be honest with you. I'm rather nervous about doing what I'm doing today. Normally when I speak, teach or coach, I speak as a professional. I'm a professor of rhetoric. I provide theory, analysis and rules. However, today, I'm not going to give you theory, analysis and rules. Instead, I invite you to a brief journey into my own reflections and reservations, my private rhetorical choices and human insecurities. And I will share with you part of the eulogy I did for my father. Now, let me be frank. We've been taught that we should know what we want to achieve. But I'm not sure what I want you to think and feel when I'm done. But I hope that you will think and feel something that you did not think and feel before I began. I will tell you about my father, my speech, and myself. And hopefully, just hopefully, that will teach us something about the genre of the eulogy, about us, all of us, about life. One summer, me, my wife, and our two daughters traveled to Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam. We were so excited about that trip, but a dark shadow descended on the last part of the travels. When we left Norway and got on the plane towards Asia, we knew that my father was sick. He'd been treated for cancer, but everything had gone well. We were certain he was fine, but he wasn't. A few days before our departure back to Norway, my mother called me. I sat on the back chairs of a hotel in the dark in Saigon, and I heard her say, but, but Jens, your father is terminal. Two days later, he died. I knew then that I wanted to do a eulogy. However, among all the practical matters, the getting home from Asia, the grief, the meeting with the family, the very, very few available moments to think about who my father was for me and what I was going to say, there was not a lot of space to actually do that. But back home, I sat down in his study to write. I looked at old photographs, I went through his drawers, I randomly picked up and studied all the stuff he had gathered. 
I sat there alone, staring at the sea outside the window. Then I wrote fragments at a time and weaved the pieces one by one together into a speech. Then I sent the eulogy to the priest. And normally I tell people, as a professional, you should never do a speech that's longer than seven minutes. My eulogy was 15 minutes. Being a rhetorician and being a bereaved are two very different perspectives. When you're a human, paying the last farewell, the rhetorical rules take on a completely new meaning. In that situation, seven minutes just can't capture a full life. So what should you say? What should you leave out? Where do you begin? When I stood in the church, besides the coffin with my father's body, I began like this. <clears throat> dear friends and family, dear sister, dear mother, my big, strong, friendly, joyful, and immortal father is no more. He always said he was strong as an ox. He assured us that he would surely become a hundred years old. It did not turn out that way. His sickness not only sucked the health out of him, it drained the spirit and joy out of him too. The pain, the fear, and melancholia drove away the laughter and the energy. But I will always remember my father as a man with an appetite for life. A man that put his hands together in joy, rubbed them in delight and cried out, ah, what a wonderful time we are having. There's so much I wanted to say to him, but now it's too late. I know that my sister and my mother are proud. I'm proud of him. We should have told him that more often. But unnoticeably, each day turns in to the next. And the conversations we should have had just did not happen. They were never expressed. All the words we wanted to give, the moment just never seemed to be the right. Dad formed me and my sister not just through the life he lived with us, but also through the life he lived before we were born. We studied with big eyes his many sports medals, read the old news clips from the time he won silver at the European Championship in rowing in Milan in a strange and distant past in 1950. We listened with dreams in our eyes when he talked about the years he lived in Thailand, when he went hitchhiking to Paris and traveled around Europe on his scooter. A house was filled with things that told us about dad before he was dad. Photographs from his youth, maps over Europe, hats from Thailand, wooden shoes from the Netherlands. <laughs> the bayonet of a German soldier's gun, which he stole after the war ended. We gathered all these pieces and put them together to, uh, to form a picture that is more 
than our Father. A human is a mosaic of movable pieces. We cannot capture all the pictures and transformations, so which picture was I to show? Standing there beside his coffin? The sick pensioner? The father? The sportsman? The person he was at work? But who really was he at work? How do we choose the elements that show the person as the person really is? Every word you choose will capture something and leave something else out. Every description lights something up and put other things in the dark. It's no coincidence that epideictic speeches very often use enumerations. Humans are too complex to be captured with just seven minutes of words. So we try to mention as many traits as we possibly can in the short amount of time we have. Eulogies try to capture the deceased as the person really was. I could not do that for my father or my mother. I knew them, of course, I knew my mom and dad, but I'm not sure who they really were. I'm not sure that any of us, any of you, have a single core, a kernel that contains our real self. I think, perhaps, we are probably more like the Norwegian playwright Henrik Ibsen describes in the play Per Gunt. The protagonist, Per, gathers wild onions. He picks up an onion and says to himself, you are an onion, Per, and now I will peel you. Per pulls off the layers of the onion and says, what an enormous amount of layers. Isn't the kernel soon coming to a light? I'm blessed if it is. To the innermost sender, it's nothing but layers, each smaller and smaller. So if we can't peel the layers of a life and get to the innermost sender of the person, then what should a eulogy do? We can say, I think, perhaps, who the deceased was for us. I could talk about who my father was for me, but um, that's not enough. At his funeral, my eulogy was the only speech. So my words are not just my words. They are also my mother's, my sister's, my children's. The speech belonged to everyone present in the church or wherever you do the eulogy. And it speaks to all of them. A eulogy is both a strong, personal feeling and it is a social act. The speech is meant to do something it should recognize death, help us realize the loved ones, and that they are no longer among us. It should unite us, it should give us comfort, and it should help us move on. A eulogy does this by uniting the past and the present. It transforms the thoughts and feelings about the person we know into the person we knew. What is becomes what was. The loss and the brutal confrontation with death is eased through praising the person that passed away. By reassuring 
the one we have lost will always live in our memories. It's hard to understand that he's no longer here. In more than 47 years, he was together with my mother. He loved her dearly and would have done anything for her. Nothing meant more to him than her love and care. He still recites in our house, which he loved so much. At least, that's how it feels. He literally built that house, transforming an old bold builder workshop by the sea into a fabulous place to grow up. Erected walls, laid floors, created rooms, insulated, dog assure, changed the pipes. He built, painted, fixed, and maintained. I know of no other man who could do so much with what he had at hand. And he had a lot at hand because he was a saver. He saved stuff in sheds and cupboards, on shelves and in drawers, in the backyard and in the attic. Everywhere things were stashed away. Planks and screws, nails and hinges, tiles and felt, doodles and dimes, boards, bicycle wheels and old spectacles. Everything you can imagine was stashed away, including a few things you probably can't imagine. <laughs> We would shake our heads about this obsession with saving, but he often found good use of all the stuff, all the things. After rummaging through sheds and boxes and cans, he would come out with a triumphant smile and a plank or a minimal screw, allowing him to fix the terrace or an old pair of spectacles. But he not only saved things, he also saved memories. He was a memory saver. Receipts from travels and purchases, school assignments from my sister and me, old clay sculptures and lino prints that we did, my mother's old sewing patterns, songs and place cards for their weddings, every kind of document and much, much more. He took care of everything the grandchildren made, their drawings, postcards, weird works of art, he would hang it in his office, put them in portfolios. At the hospital, the grandchildren's carts and drawings stood beside his bed. Now, the bed is empty. But he's still here. It is as though he just went for a walk and he'll be back in a minute. We see him everywhere. I can hear him giggling at his own silly jokes, his quick comments, his friendly teasing remarks. I sense his movements in the kitchen when he makes himself an open sandwich or sits down in the good chair and reaches out for the remote control. I can smell his aftershave when he sat down for supper in his fine shirt because me and the family had come from Norway to visit. I'm sitting in the kitchen expecting him to come and sit down beside me. But no one comes. So I look out through the window at the sea and think about all the good he brought into our lives.
because the eulogy performs a social function, it should not only capture my emotions, it should also capture the emotions of all the bereaved. It should not only show my father as I saw him, it should show him in a way that makes everybody say, yes, yes, that is who he was. This is what he thought. This is what he did. These were his gestures, his scent, his essence. But the eulogy should not only describe the content and the style of the eulogy should also reflect the person described, put forward to you. The importance of the, of the content and style being appropriate for the deceased is clear in the eulogy comedian John Cleese delivered for his Monty Python friend, many times mentioned, Graham Chapman in 1989. Graham Chapman, the author of the parrot sketch, is no more. He ceased to be bereft of life. He rests in peace. Yes, kick the bucket, hop the twig, bit the dust, snuffed it, breathed his last, and has gone to meet the great head of light entertainment in the sky. <laughs> and I guess that we are thinking how sad it is that a man of such talent, such capability and kindness would be swift away spirited away suddenly at the age of only 48, before he'd achieved many of the things he was capable of and before he'd had enough fun. Well, I think that I should say nonsense. Good riddance to him, the freeloading bastard. I hope he fries. <laughs> now, cheese, not cheese, please begin with something that appears to be common euphemisms meant to gently make us understand that the deceased is no longer among us. Cease to be bereft of life, rests in peace. But then, by expanding and parodying these phrases, Cleese makes us aware that they are just trite cliches. Kick the bucket, gone to meet the great head of light entertainment in the sky. And then he ends with words that you simply do not say in a church. The freeloading bastard, I hope he fries. <laughs> Such words are inappropriate in a church, which is exactly why they're inappropriate in that eulogy. Because the reason I say this, Cleese tells the audience, is that Chapman would never forgive me if I didn't. <clears throat> if I threw away this glorious opportunity to shock you all on his behalf anything for him but good, mindless, good taste. I could hear him whispering in my ear last night as I wrote this. All right, please, you're very proud of being the first person to ever say shit on television. I want you to be the first person at a British memorial ever to say fuck. <laughs> so, honesty is essential. As a speaker, one must be oneself, not a passive instrument of conventions and formal rules. And at first sight, you may all think this is obvious, of course. A eulogy must be genuine. The speaker must be authentic. And we've heard this many times throughout the last days. But what does that mean, being authentic? The honest and the candid, the sincere and the open-hearted is authentic. 
But more than anything, the true authentic is the unplanned and the spontaneous. It emerges by itself, so to speak. Nothing is more genuine than the feelings forcing the way through your body that you just can't hold back. You just can't suppress them. The lump in your throat, the tears that you can't hold back. The strongest and most expressive words seems to be those that we cannot express clearly, but only manage to say in faltering, stumbling ways, grappling after a possible truth. Only when language breaks down and words escape us, we appear to be able to say what language can't say. This is why the inept speakers are sometimes the ones that moves us the most, and the eloquent speakers are sometimes the ones that moves us the least. But I'm a rhetorician. I plan. I want control of the audience. I know how good speech is. I studied it scientifically for a quarter of a century. I know how to construct three-point lists, create capturing metaphors, use effective contrasts. I knew the craft. I know the craft. I use the tools. And perhaps all this, all the techniques that we do, perhaps this removes me from reality. Perhaps the techniques makes it difficult for me to be real, uh, to be authentic, because I carefully plan and I think through what I want to say. I contemplate which rhetorical devices is the best to use. I'm conscious of what they should do. Does that make my eulogy to my father less true? Does it make it more artificial and false? Do my words come more from techniques than they come from the heart? No. The truth and the real flow not only from the spontaneous and the authentic, because when we search for the right words that truly express what we feel, and when we find the sentences describing who the deceased was for us, then we not only reflect on what we feel, but also which feelings are the appropriate ones. This is why eulogies are important. They not only help find the thoughts, they also help us find and understand the feelings. I wrote the speech for my father because I wanted to share and honor his memory with family and friends. I wanted to put forward the values that he lived. But I also wrote the speech because I wanted to remember him, feel him again. I wanted to think about who he was, what he represented. I used the speech to find out who he was for me, who we were together. I used the eulogy to find out what I felt for him and for us. So when you rhetorically think and feel your way towards the human who's no longer among us, you find that feelings are difficult. Now, I don't mean they're difficult because they're sometimes painful or unpleasant, but because they're rarely pure. Feelings are generally mixed. 
I cannot separate the grief of the loss of my father from the joy he gave me. Grief is the price of love. The embarrassment the child sometimes feels towards the parent cannot be separated from the love they feel and desire. I felt that myself when I spoke about my childhood. Some contemporary psychologists suggest that one should be careful with exaggerated praise of one's children. Dad did not follow that rule. He could be very explicit about the pride in his family. As a young boy, I did gymnastics. At a demonstration with the parents present, we would run and jump and do somersaults. And after one of my, let me be honest, half-decent jumps, he would put his hands together and applause, yay, by shouting, bravo, bravo, this is my son. <laughs> it was with a strange mix of joy and pride of his recognition and anger of putting him and me in the spotlight that I immediately ran to him and asked him to be quiet. Please, Dad. <laughs> yes, my father was generous with praise and he loved to receive it himself. I think we should all follow his example and give each other more praise and recognition. These, my friends, were the thoughts and feelings I wanted to share with you today. I hope that you also have something you want to share with me. Have you done a eulogy? What did you do? Were you able to capture the person as he or she really was? Or is that impossible? And if it is, what does that mean for the art of the eulogy? So please share. Let us use the last minutes we have together to explore how we use the eulogy to understand death and life. But before we do that, allow me to end today by making the last words to my father, my last words to you. Dad enjoyed gathering family and friends to celebrations and good times. With mother, he'd organized a great party for his 80th birthday. He really looked forward to that. But he only lived to become 79. So instead of a birthday party, we would like to invite you all to a gathering at the local town hall after the funeral. Let us have a gathering in my father's spirit. Let us remember the memory saver. Let us share the grief and good experiences. Let us mix the tears with smiles and laughter. Today is not a good day, but when we gather to reminisce and enjoy the good food and drinks, then I'm sure that we will feel Dad looking down at us from above. And if we listen carefully, maybe we can hear him put his hands together in joy, rub them in delight, and say to us all, ah, what a wonderful time we are having.